Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Today, Nicole Kyle, our Music and Worship Arts Director, is back with Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, to answer the many questions from this last sermon out of our Nehemiah series. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. If you have any further questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Nicole Kyle. I work on staff here at High Point Church and I'm with our lead pastor, Nick Gibson. Hey everyone. And we're going to go through some of the Ask Me Anything questions, AMA questions from this past Sunday, which was November 22nd. And we also had a few people email some questions as well. So we will cover questions related to the sermon. We will also cover questions that are completely unrelated. And um, hopefully this is something that is helpful for you in your walk with Christ, in your discipleship with Jesus, and as you relate to the people in your life. So Nick, before we get to the questions, would you just take a couple minutes to give an overview of the sermon that you preached? Yeah, so I preached out of Nehemiah 13, and it happens mostly after a 12-year absence of Nehemiah, this person who's led throughout the whole book, right? And so he goes back to Susa, and while he's gone, all of these things they put in place for the revival have just kind of fallen apart. Everybody's kind of gone back to their old ways, and corruption's entered in again, and just the whole thing's kind of miscarried. And so I talked about how structurally that sort of happens, and the, the main idea was that you can have great um, revival or repentance. Like you can have a moment where like in the romance of knowing what God wants and like having this moment, you're like, we, I need to do this. And you have this like moment of faith that doesn't by itself sustain itself. Right. Like that is like, and and I compared it to um, like meeting somebody and have, have like being romantically infatuated with them. And that, that that's a stage. That's not a, that's not an eternity. Right that's meant to lead you to get to know each other and to bond and to have experiences together. And so think what actually builds a long-term meaningful relationship. If you don't use that time of passion to do that, then when you're done, it just burns out. Right. And you're, you're just, it says to quote a, a saying from the sound, there ain't no ash that'll burn. Like you're, you've burned up everything that'll burn and now you're done. Right. So similarly, like when you have moments of repentance where God is touching you, you've got to, do something with that. You have to like, yeah, you embrace it fully emotionally in the moment, but then you say, okay, now what, like, what do I have to do tomorrow? What am I doing? Do I have to do in 10 minutes? Like, how do I structure? How, right. Cause you have to change your character to go along with the romantic moment. And that's going to take a lifetime. So anyway, there's multiple visions. One is, I mean, an immediate, an immediate horizon, you're like, reaching out to God for his momentary grace and a medium horizon. You're seeking to continually build devotion so that you're, you want to keep moving towards God and stay with him. And then the long-term horizon, you're seeking to do things that'll slowly change your character, your perceptions, your thinking, your heart being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as it says in Romans chapter 12. And that's, that's your a lifetime horizon. So in, and a Christian spiritually should be working on all three of those God's momentary grace, tending the fire of devotion regularly and over the long term, seeking through that devotion to be changed in your character, and that just doesn't happen. Like people can really, really be—you can be a hundred percent passionate about something. That does not mean anything's going to happen in the long run. Right. As you were listing those different horizons, I, that was the thought I was having. Like none of that's going to happen on accident. You're right. not going to find yourself doing those things 
acts just without intentionality behind it. You have to right. intentionally do there, it. There is no victory of human character that I know of that can avoid discipline. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and intentionality, I think, is, is, is a, you can say that too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. Okay. So let's jump into the questions. Um, we're going to start with one that is more specific to the passage, and then we'll get to some that are more based in application, applying it to today. So this first question okay. says, how important was the removal of Tobiah in moving forward with the reformations in um, Nehemiah chapter 13? Uh, like totally essential. I mean, so, so there, there is a little um, controversy as to whether or not the uh, Elishib in chapter 13 is the same Elishib in chapter 3, who is the high priest, and the same one um, later in the chapter. And, but I think they are. The, the reason why this controversy is because in, the, in that verse, in verse 3, he's called the priest rather than the high priest. And in the two other places, he's called the high priest. So some people would think, well, because he's not called the high priest, and because he was in charge of these storerooms, he, he must be a different Elishib who's not that important. I doubt that. I doubt that. I don't. I, th- I think that one of the highest level priests, the high priest, made a high level political marriage with Tobiah. Is what I think what happened, and I think it was. I think it was a, a standard high level political intrigue to um, unite two houses. And so, yeah. I mean, it, this is this situation in which like the religious work of the temple isn't being done. The Levites aren't doing what they're supposed to do, and you have corruption at the highest level of of um, the spiritual authority. I mean, this would be like having a super corrupt senior pastor and chair of your elder board. And you're trying to like have a healthy church. I mean, I don't want to say it's a hundred percent impossible for that to happen, but it's pretty, it's well nigh impossible for that to happen. I mean, it's real. I mean, like what you have to do is you have to remove that person or you have to help them come to repentance. You know, and I, yeah, I think Nehemiah removed Elisha, you know, which is, yeah, pretty serious business. Um, so, well, and now, now my, I'm starting to think about like New Testament examples that we see of. The, I mean, it's different. It's not necessarily New Testament examples of leaders leaders who are being removed, but mm-hmm. we do see people from the church who are experiencing being removed from the body of Christ and from the family of God. Do you think, because in those instances, Paul writes that it's explicitly for that the good of that person who's being removed. Because in, it's, first, in first Corinthians 5, he does, yes. Yeah. Do you think but that- But that's, that's not to bar it from the rest, because he does say a little leaven works through the whole dough, meaning that if you allow that person to persist, they're right. going to wreck everybody else too. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say it's only for that person's good, mm-hmm, but he does believe mm-hmm. it's also for their good. Yeah. I think that, can you just talk a little bit about, because it- I think that we can easily think, well, we want to preserve this person or it's kind of like the idea of empathy. Empathy is good to a point, but it can prevent us from doing the hard thing. And I think in this case, being willing to remove the leadership of somebody is a hard thing when we're asked to do it. Right. So I I heard somebody say recently, because I've always said that like empathy is a kind of, can be a kind of emotional treason, though it's also an absolutely necessary um, instinct, right? In order for you to be properly formed. But the person said, empathy is a extremely um, short-term and childish moral strategy. And, 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 and when he said that, it wasn't to say it's bad. It's just saying like, 
like if you think of how empathy works, it's supposed to happen like in, in an immediate context. Like somebody tells you something terrible and you're like, oh, that's so terrible. And you like immediately empathize with them, give them the right emotional and social response, right? And you're like, oh, that's so odd. You give them a hug or you're like, you're there for them, right? In empathy. Or if somebody says, you're, you're doing this thing and it's really bothering me. And you're like, you know, if, if I did you do that to me, I guess that would really bother me. And you have like emp- that, that faculty of empathy allows you to go, oh yeah, right. But like, things get real complicated real fast. Like for example, love is supposed to be when we act in the true good of another person. Right. So you have to know what that is. Right. And empathy won't tell you that all empathy can tell you is how they feel. It gives you some approximation in your own feelings about how the other person feels. Right. And therefore it humanizes you. It humanizes the other person and makes you less flippant about their feelings, but it doesn't tell you what to do. And so, um, See, yeah. So it's so it's you got to be you have to be more than that. Like and so this is one of the problems with this. Some of the like some people who are kind of like they they post their signs like you know kindness is everything and like you know teach kids empathy and the world be a better place. And you're like, well, I don't know, I don't know because that's not really what makes a, people moral, right? And it's a mis it's it's assigning too much responsibility to what empathy is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Empathy, yeah, it's like making yeah, it's making empathy morality, and it, it, empathy's not supposed to be morality. It's supposed to right. be an internal reaction that emotionally fortifies moral feelings, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. That's basically it. And yeah, yeah. So okay. that was a little bit of a sideways, but it's where my mind went. So um, maybe others were thinking that too. Okay, let's move into some application from the sermon. This person writes, "I understand how to repent, but how do I know how to achieve the restoration and revival in my life? How do I know if I'm doing it right in God's eyes?" Okay, so the word repent means to make a turn. It means it means to turn around, right? So repenting is when you say, "I was going toward A, and I need to turn around and go towards B," right? Um, revival is when something is, has its life kind of drained out of it. Like it's, it's weakened unto death and then it like kind of comes back to life. Right. And oftentimes when you repent, you experience revival because you give up on a way that was killing you and you start moving in a different way that'll give you life and you, it, it revives you. Right. Generally speaking, the word revival is used corporately that a group and that group's life together revives. Right. So in to restore usually means something is broken or taken away and given back or healed. That's different than for something to be reformed, which is something is going wrong and it's set right. And it's done so in, in some way. Usually the, the word reformation assumes that that setting right is institutional. Like it's not just like corrected, but it's like things are set in place so it will continue to go correctly. Does that make sense? So um, if what we're after is reform, then repentance then needs to lead to something. So for example, in, in second Corinthians, there's this distinction that the apostle Paul makes uh, between, between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Right. And he says that worldly sorrow um, leads to death and it's because it leads to like guilt and shame that is unproductive. Right. So sometimes people talk about shame as almost as though it's an unproductive form of guilt, but shame in a sense is humiliation for the fact of your behavior or character. Right. And that can be unproductive and it can be productive, right? So if, for example, if I feel ashamed at something because um, it was really dumb, right? But I know that the people 
with whom I should be ashamed um, are going to accept me right back. I, that it's not necessarily an unproductive emotion. If I, if I know, like I, I repent, I say, I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, that was really stupid. And I decide I'm going to change and do better. Right. Um, then it's just embarrassment. And I, I get past it. If shame includes rejection, then, um, then what happens is like it builds on itself and it tends to have this crushing effect. Right. So, but in a uh, second Corinthians seven, verse 10, um, the apostle Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, and then it says, see what godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice, justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. What, what he means is that in, in, the, in first Corinthians, he wrote and was like, Hey, you did all, you're doing these things wrong. Like they're they're It's really bad what you're doing. The, the Corinthian church was a bit unhealthy. Right? So he, he writes in this letter and it affects them. They feel ashamed. They feel sorrow. Right. But when they repent, it leads to something like, they, they, there's a there's a positive thing that happens both emotionally because it says like it affects emotionally like it, it creates earnestness they want to clear their name therefore and make restitution and then it says what indignation like you really are angry at and really find disgusting the thing you did wrong which you wouldn't have before right I actually had a conversation with a, a young a young man this last week who was struggling with a certain kind of sin because of a certain kind of problem he was having and he said I'm not doing any better. But the last time I tried to do the sin, I didn't do it because it just felt disgusting. Like I did, I hated it and didn't even, didn't want, I was like, that is progress. Like that's progress. That's good. Because like you're, you're, you're having the right kind of indignation about what things really are. Right. That's a good thing. And then what alarm, like a, th- that, that's the idea of like urgency. Like, oh my gosh, I need to do something about this right now. Right. Alarm. And then what longing, like to desire, like to have a longing in your heart for to be different, to think different, to behave differently, to, to really be and do what God wants. Um, and what concern, like it really matters to you. You're concerned about it. It, ta- it, it draws in your concentration to, to really change. And then what readiness to see justice done, like they're ready to, to do whatever it takes. Right. Um, now, um, th- therefore, if repentance is the kind of is the repentance that's moved by the spirit and leads to godly sorrow, right? Or comes from godly sorrow, it's gonna lead to this kind of thing. Like these sorts of states of mind that will also lead to a desire to do what whatever needs to be done, whatever it takes to get from here to there. Whether it's to stay in the momentary grace of God, to tend the fire of devotion so that your heart remains in the right place to keep moving in the right direction personally in terms of your choices, and then to structure your life so that you are building yourself into the person you want to become, right? You can't just make your character into something, but you can you can make choices in the present that have very predictable outcomes. Like if you literally, if you with real devotion, read your Bible and pray every day, you journal, you think about what God wants, and you do that for, I mean, when I first started doing it, I was in college where I did it regularly. I did it for an hour every day and it completely transformed me in the course of a year, just one year. I mean, just a totally different person. And, um, and it, and I, and like, I didn't change myself in a minute, but there was a day I decided I was going to do that. And then I had to, and it took me a month to build the practice. And then to tell all my friends, including my non-Christian friends, this is what I do from 11 to 12. So don't invite me to the dining hall at 1145. Cause I won't go. Right. 
only, I'll only go at 12 when I'm done. Right. And those practices then had the formational effect on me. Right. And, and I've been doing that different things throughout my whole life. So I think if what you really want is for the passion of repentance, not to miscarry, then you absolutely have to, um, point your heart in a direction where you know it's going to take time and you have to build practices around it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. I think, yeah, it's the, it's one, it's one of those things. I mean, you've talked about this a lot in the time that I've been coming to high point, but that you have to set these things into motion. You have to tell people and like, that's part of it. And then you also have to trust that God's work is going to be in you in the process. I mean, this is what we talk about with gracious striving, that it is God's grace and we participate in it too. Right. Yeah. I didn't say more about that because I think there's some questions about that coming up. Okay. But, but yeah, Yeah. I I said at the end of the second service, I I think that this is important. It's like every time we say you need to do this, Right. right in Christian faith, you're you're always doing it with something God is giving you. You're always trying to say, "What has God given already? What has He already provided?" And then, how do I participate with that? Not how do I create it myself? So the way I said it in the second service was, um, we have to everything we take in about how hard we have to work or how we need to strive in the Christian faith, we need to take with the enzyme of grace, yeah, so that we can digest it. Yeah, let's go to that question because I think that the, okay. we're on this conversation. It says, if our desire and aim is to overcome, but we keep stumbling, are we excluded from God's grace because we haven't overcome? And I think that this person is particularly referencing the part of your sermon where you were quoting from Revelation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Revelation chapter two and following, there's seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor where um, the Apostle John is is quoting the Christ in this vision saying, you know, here's what I'm calling you to do. And to the one who overcomes, I will give this some great thing. And it implies that that's the attitude we have to have. We have to have a, we have to believe that we're, we have to persevere. You shouldn't comfort yourself that you can give up the faith and turn your back on Jesus and you're still saved. That all works. That believers persevere. That's a mark of belief, of real faith. And so um, so this person is like, well, what if I don't overcome? Does that mean I miss, lose and miss the grace of God? Um, I think that if you I think that if you don't overcome by the definition Jesus is using, I think that to some extent that that you have used the grace of God in vain. So that you don't get the final grace of salvation and glorification. I do think that's what the text means. However, I think it's also important to recognize that that um, continuing continuing to stumble isn't the same thing as not persevering. Um, you can do a lot of falling in the same direction. So to, to for one to like to be lost, who claims to believe, you have to fail to persevere. Right. And that doesn't mean you don't make it to the finish line. The finish line is death. It's coming to you. You have to just not quit. Right. You have to not get out of the race. And I, I don't pretend to know all the dynamics of like at what moment somebody is like saved, like spiritually speaking, whether or not there, there's their part, their passages in the Bible meant to focus us on feeling assured that God is going to save us. And there's other passages in the Bible that want us to be concerned and to not presume that we're just saved and no matter what, everything's going to be fine. Right. And, and that, that tension it is supposed to exist. We're supposed to feel both assured and terrified. Right. Whereas it, it literally says, work out your salvation with fear, with fear and, trembling. and trembling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And we want, we want to be like, well, yeah, but this other passage says that if we're a sheep in Jesus, the shepherd's hands, well, nothing can ever take us out of his hand, which is also true. Right. So for some reason, God wants you to be totally assured that Jesus, the shepherd can carry you to the end and be completely terrified as you work out your faith with fear and trembling. Right. 
But it's important to remember that that in the midst of the vigilance we should have about our fear and trembling, that God's grace, the Bible, like for example, Paul says, his grace is sufficient for me. That is the amount of grace I need to persevere, I will receive. And that is always true. There's no human being that will get to heaven or hell in the judgment of God and, and have been in a place where if they had just gotten a little more grace from God, they could have made it. That's never going to happen. So we have the grace that we've been given or the, or the generosity of God is incredibly abundant. It's way more than we should ever need. And so um, I, I think it's important to recognize that, that, that you're never going to be without the grace you need ever, ever. And there's a passage in first Corinthians 10 that everybody, it's, it's hard to believe sometimes. It's a promise that people quote to other people, usually not to themselves, that God will, won't give you more than you can bear, but he'll always give you a way to, a mm-hmm. way out, a way mm-hmm. to stand up under whatever the temptation mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the let's, we're going to transition a little bit into a different topic, two questions that are kind of unrelated to each other, but use the same language. Um, the, the, which is you, how we talk about things as tools or resources. So one person is asking what are some tools and resources? And the other person is making a comment on referring to the Holy Spirit as a resource. So let's start with that one. This person says, referring to the role and purpose of the Holy Spirit as, um, quote, a different resource that we have available to us to overcome the entropy of depravity, this seems like an understatement. There isn't really a question there, but they just are giving that comment. Would you like to respond? Yeah, I mean, yes, that was... That was the locution, right? It was it was a it was supposed to be an understatement. Yeah. So yes, mm-hmm. that's okay. true. Great. I just wanted to give a little time to that if we could. Okay. Um, now here's this next person's question. This says, "What are some real life tools that we have to leave things that with God that we have asked Him to take and He does?" And I think. Anger is the example that they use. Anger is very, very hard to wield. Temperance is a good direction to send us in. But what are some real life tools so that we can leave some things with God? I don't, do you know what the context to leave things with God means? Well, so the way that I thought this person was writing was like, if there are things that we need to surrender and submit to God, such as anger, what are real life tools that we have to do those things? Yeah. I mean, by the spirit, the pursuit of the corresponding virtue, right? So, so this person answers that question relative to anger, right? The, the, the corresponding virtue to anger would be temperance. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and you could do that with lots of things, right? Uh, rudeness might be kindness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could go through whatever, whatever vice, it is that you're facing profoundly and there's a, there is a corresponding Christian virtue to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say pursuing that by means of God's word, what he teaches us, mm-hmm. what he shows us in Christ and then what he empowers in his spirit in pursuit of that virtue is the way to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think I'll offer an example briefly this last year, one of the areas of my life where I felt really convicted and what I wanted to grow in was, in contentment. Um, but it, it was like, it's hard to set a goal of something that like you were talking about at the beginning of this episode, that is something in your character that you want to change. And so 
I was trying to think, well, how can I actually try to pursue this in healthy ways that isn't just like acting a particular way that isn't true to what's actually changing in my character. So I tried to come up with some things that I felt like, okay, well, I know that I feel really discontent when I'm on social media, so I'm going to get off of social media. And I know that when I'm challenged with scripture about contentment, that that does do something in my soul and in my spirit. And these were ways, like these were action things I was trying to do that were tangible, but I also knew this was going to be the work of the spirit manifesting himself and his power through these actions and through his word and through transforming me and guiding me as I did these things. And I think that sometimes with the like intangibles, you have to be a little creative in what that's going to look like for you, like what you're actually going to do, but God will work in, in those very things too. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and so so for an example there is like, you know, Colossians 3, where it says, set your mind on things above where Christ is set above the heaven, you know, in the heavenly realms and like taking God's word and recognizing that like there's, there is an otherworldly attitude that should be in your heart. And to the extent to which it is um, how good this coffee is or like whether or not you're getting the thing you want now is, it's it's not like it doesn't mean anything. You sh- I mean, you still want to to like... Um, engage with the world and like enjoy things and all that. But, but the difference is, is that it doesn't have the same effect. Like, like it doesn't, you don't blow up. You don't, you don't flip out. You you know what I mean? Like you, it has a very different kind of effect on you. And Tim Keller used to say it this way. He'd say, um, if you believe the gospel, there's a lot of things that are still going to hurt you as you participate in real life, but they won't devastate you. Because they're because those things aren't your foundation, right? They, they, they matter. They're in your life. They're real. But they're but because they're because if they're removed, it doesn't remove the foundation of your life. You're hurt, but you're not devastated. And I think that that's a fundamental truth. Because if if you're not if nothing affects you, then you're not participating in the real life of the world. You're not embracing your calling and creation. Like you're gonna get hurt. I mean, it's gonna happen. But um, if you're if you're otherworldly, if you if your greatest e- most eager expectation is your glorification as a son or daughter of God, that you're going to receive the righteousness for which you hope, that you're going to all those things, then you'll realize, oh yeah, this doesn't matter. Like it matters, but it doesn't matter. And that's kind of where you want to be because you can deal with stuff really productively when you're like it matters, but it doesn't matter. If everything rides on it, then you freak out. And if it doesn't matter at all, then everybody thinks you're dismissive and you don't care about them. Right. Yeah. Your extremes are going to be um, like complete passivity for one reason or, or complete being being paralyzed for the other reason mm-hmm. rather yeah. than being able to be, do the thing. Yeah. You'll be cynical or hysterical. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that'll mm-hmm. be the temptation at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you see that, I mean, it's just like, like w- turn the TV on and like, you'll see <laughs> cynical and hysterical it's just in yeah. spades all the time, you know? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. All right. We have one last question that's related to the sermon and in application. So this person writes, I wonder what reformations either brought to mind by our COVID journey or the political and social turmoil of this season. So what reformations need vigilant, energetic, authoritative attention in order to accomplish permanent repentance? That's the sort of question that you could talk about for about four hours, right? Um, so within the local church, it's always going to be godliness first, and then that broken down into a number of different areas, right? 
I think that one of the reformations always has to be like, if you look at Nehemiah 13 and in most of the book, what happens is that people just don't do what God explicitly says. That's what happens. And if you, if you look at um, a couple of chapters earlier, I think it's in chapter 11 where all the people make a, they make a covenant. They, they make a new written agreement. They say, listen, here's what we're not going to do. So they, they know what they're going to be tempted to do. And they, the first thing they say is we're not going to marry foreign women or give our daughters to foreign men, right? We're going we're gonna to have the people of Judah marry the people of Judah. So there is a cultural identity, right? And then they're like, we're not going to sell or buy stuff on the Sabbath day. We're going to supply the household of God. You, then you go to chapter 13. That's exactly what they didn't do. Exactly what they didn't do. So they knew what it was going to be and they didn't do it. So I think in, so I think the first place to look is what's the stuff you, you know you're going to be tempted about and you're just going to do it anyway. So I would say uh, the Christian sexual ethic. There's a lot of Christians that know darn well that God says that we can either have um, sex with people we're married to, um, only one, or we are committed to unmitigated chastity. And um, there's a lot of Christians that look at that and they just don't do it. They don't care. Sex is just too big a deal. It's too much pleasure. It's too much connecting. It makes you feel alive. It's your capacity for interhuman worship. It's we're a over-sexualized culture and people are just like, I'm not doing that. Like that's too, like God shouldn't be regulating my bedroom or whatever, you know, like, and that's, that is abominable. It's abominable. Um, I think relationship to generosity there, I think that people feel like they should be able to keep all their money and that they, and that if they want to work themselves to death, they can. And God forbids both, right? Um, I think that at least the principle of the Sabbath, um, which Christians have seen embodied in the day of worship on Sundays, um, that is going to the the house of God, a gathering place for the believers if possible, and to worship together, I think is is incredibly important. And I think it is forsaken by a lot of people. There's a lot of people that just go whenever they want to. And I, I don't think that's what you should we should do. That's not going to bring revival or long-term restoration. So there's a number of those kinds of things that are like, we all know we don't want to do them. <laughs> like if we were going to make a pledge, we'd all say, these are the things we're going to do because man, we these are the things we're most prone not to do, right? Then you, you can look at human nature and say, like, what are some of the things that we should expect will naturally kind of go go against because they're hard? So I think that multi-ethnicity is one of those things, like trying to be a community where people from every different kind of place can feel welcome and be a full part of the community. That's really, really hard to do. I think a lot of people who talk about anti-racism and eth- and like ethnic, ethnic cohesion and uh, and racial justice and social justice and all that kind of thing. I, sometimes I don't think they realize how inhuman it is. A thing diversity is a very inhuman thing. People are just people aren't really wired for diversity. You can some personality temperaments like it because they really like variety and they like differences and they're highly open in their temperament and all that kind of thing. But for the most part, it's extremely inhuman. People don't want to constantly not know what the rules are. They don't want to constantly have to like wonder which language game they're playing or like what social dynamic is going on here or what are the assumptions or what the shared experiences. What people want is another person with almost exactly the same shared experiences as them who have the same interests and the same loves and they want to do something they always do together. Like that's what people really want, right? That is not what happens with diversity. And so, and yet God wants a substantial effect of breaking down the dividing walls of 
hostility between human beings to create one people who are truly united. Now, I don't think that necessarily has to mean that everybody has to worship in the same church and sing all the same songs every Sunday. But what it means is, is that if you look at the body of Christ, there should not be evidence of division, that there, there's no dividing wall, right? So like, you know, how sometimes people say um, Sunday is or has been the most segregated hour in America. I think that's baloney because segregation is a government controlled um, establishment that forces a dividing wall between people. It's not like, it's not like um, there's no wall, but people just do different things. Like if you get a bunch of Latinos together and they can go play basketball or soccer and you get a bunch of like, I don't know, like um, inner city African-American boys together and you're like, okay, we're all going to play soccer. We're all going to play basketball. Just play whichever sport you want to play. The likelihood that the vast majority of the African-American boys are going to play basketball and the vast majority of Latino kids are going to play soccer is not racist, right? But it'll look really segregated. Right now, if they don't like each other, and if the the three Latino boys that want to play basketball can't, because it would just it, it's not thinkable. Now that's a dividing wall of hostility, right? And that, in some sense, is racist, right? So within the church, we should understand that as human beings, we are kind of wired to not be inclusive. We're wired not to be multi ethnic. We're wired to be parochial. We're you know we're wired for all this stuff, and so we have to like actively kind of work against it. In some ways, all of the secondary core values at High Point Church were selected because they're this kind of thing, that there are areas that need continual renewal. So you continually need to have renewal in your leadership and like raising up new leaders and making sure your leaders are on the right track, making sure they're neither burnt out nor corrupt. Um, evangelism, that we, no matter how many times you get rejected, we have the commission to share the gospel. That's why we're here. That's what we do. Multi-ethnicity, international and intergenerational, Right all generations toward all generations, all peoples towards all peoples, all languages and differences towards each other uh, united around the purity of Christ. Right. I think that those actually need um, vigilant, energetic, authoritative attention. And I especially think things surrounding poverty and racial disparity. They, I do not think this is one of the reasons why I don't get really hot bothered about like demonstrations I really, I, and I really think that um, this is a problem with the conceptual framework of activism. That um, you, you have to be careful about activism because it tends to say we need to do this without the kind of like, okay, it's going to take twenty years. Right. We got to break down to seven steps. Right. It's going to like. Well, because I mean, they, I think this gets at what you were talking about at the beginning of this—that it's easy, it's very easy to be passionate about something in a moment. I mean, we've had this conversation as a staff team, for example, after men were killed by police officers, and there was a lot of um, movement of activism in different cities around the U.S. And what we were talking about, what you had us talking about, is okay, but. What about three months from now? What about five months from now? What about a year from now? Because it's very easy when something happens to all come together around under this banner and then forget about it later because you're passionate in a moment, but if you're not, but it can easily fizzle out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the, I think, yeah, the, that stuff related to um, African-American men being killed by police officers. I, that's a, I think that's a, a really good example of the sort of thing that could do good, but rarely does. Right. Because the problem in America is not that unarmed black men are being hunted by police officers. That's not the problem. Um, it, it relate it relative to police action, lower level. So like it was studied statistically, um, African-American men are not killed 
as unarmed men any more often than white men. There's there's tons of examples that just don't go to the press about white unarmed white men being killed all the time. Um, it be, and it's because the police have three. It's like 340 million interactions with citizens every year, right? I mean, just imagine that, like 340. It's it's more than 300 million citizen interactions. Um, some unarmed people are going to be killed, right? And they're going to be of different races, and that's really. But but, um, uh, I think it's Roland Fryer. He's an African American scholar. I think he's at Harvard right now. He's an economist, I believe. They went through and studied like w- uh, every case of police interacting with people of different races. And they tried to collate it really scientifically and to really go through all these different descriptions and say, okay, what is really apples to apples? And can we determine that there's a disparity? And, and, and actually they were able to do it. They were, they were able to show that in lower levels of force that were humiliating and in some ways dehumanizing because you're taking away somebody's power and really, like really messing with their head and like making them feel powerless and like that you're not on their side. And, and so they don't have a place in their society. Like there's a lot of effect to that, that a lot of what was happening with black men that was different was these lower levels of force. Right. And it looks like through other bits of data, higher levels of convictions. Right. And that those are creating major problems. Yeah. Which are happening at a higher frequency than even though the rates are different, it's happening at a higher frequency than the, men who are being killed, whatever the yeah. race is. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it's a straightforward fact percentage wise, like, like, um, like if, if you equate, equate for even numbers of peoples that criminality in the African American community is significantly statistically higher. Okay. However, like you, that still doesn't tell you very much. It's still a chicken and the egg issue. Like, why is that? Right. Um, but there's also the issue of, even if that's true, that doesn't mean these other things aren't true. Right. So you could see how higher levels of criminality among a certain group of people could also lead towards higher levels of police officers being ultra careful or upset or even to grow an increased amount of prejudice, right, from real experience. So if you're a cop and you go out there and most of your calls involve young black men, well, what happens when you bump into a young black man who's not really doing much wrong? Right. Or like, or you pull somebody over and he's a young black man, but in the last 30 guys you arrested were young black men. Because of where you're working, where your beat is. Like, what does that do to your heart? How do you look at it? Right. So th- this is a case where like being like really focused on the truth and energetic and like trying and, and curious and trying to figure out what the real problem is. And like, and, and but then here's the thing. What most of our African American friends are upset about, and one of the reasons why they tend to give themselves to ideologies of activism, is because they can't trust us three months from now to not forget about all this. Right. What happens is everybody gets upset. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just forget about it as soon as we can forget about it. As opposed to saying, okay, okay, listen, it is unacceptable that this is the case, right? Like, yes, you're always, there's always going to be poverty, but it doesn't have to look like this. That doesn't mean you just accept it. Jesus never said, you know, because the poor will always be among us, you don't need to help them. He's like, look, because the poor will always be among us, you will always be helping them. Right. And so trying to figure out like, how do we do? So this is what I do do with some of my African-American friends in the city where we're trying to figure out what to do. What are we going to do over 10 years, not just a month? What is the real problem so that we're dealing with the real problem? What is likely to actually do some good rather than just make us feel good and so on. Right. And to do that, you have to have a totally different kind of mentality about how things develop. You can't just be like, we're going to have a revival. I mean, activism is essentially seeking a revival, at least in demonstration, whereas reformation is change, right? And so, and I'm not saying that, and I don't want to say that like, I'm saying that like all black leaders 
are behaving that way. There's a bunch, there's a lot of black leaders in Madison and all over Wisconsin and elsewhere that are very solution focused, long-term thinkers. They're collaborative. They're activists when they feel like they need to be to bring awareness to something, but they really are very focused on what's going to make things better. And, and what I try to do is try to figure out who those people are and then try to interact with them more and then try to support them more and follow them more. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, okay. So here's my question for you off of And that this- is, and let me just say just quick, because that sounded like I went on this whole thing about race. I actually think that's one of the big areas where the world sees a need for a kind of revival and restoration reforming in our society that we can participate in even beyond our doors and within our doors as the local church and the people of God. And I think we do need to be energetic, authoritative, and, and vigilant about that, both in terms of multi-ethnicity inside of our church and outside. Like for, for let me give you a quick example of this. Lloyd just left to go get to be a senior pastor. Ashlyn's going to go to law school, right? Like five months ago, we had, we had a good proportionate diversity on our staff. Right, um, Manohar could get a green card anytime, and if he does, he could go full time with SAI. Now, if that all happens, all of a sudden, like you're the most diverse person on our staff because you're half Latino, right? Like, like poof, right? And so, without being vigilant and energetic about this, like, you know, before you know it, like nothing bad happened, but you, you, you could be a church that has worked for five years to be more multi ethnic, and then just like in a, a turn of a few events, all of a sudden you're you're right back where you started. So, so it takes, it takes a, like multi-ethnicity takes a ton of vigilance and energy in my opinion. And I would say authoritative too. Like we you have to speak authoritatively about it because nobody gonna wants be upset. to do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you're, and you're also going to struggle with never being able to fully please everybody. And so you've got to, I mean, it, it takes mm-hmm. a ton of energy just in the authoritative part. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so hearing you talk, I mean, you just answered that question with a lot of things that require. Yeah vigilant, energetic, authoritative reformation. Yeah. Well, I went and through, that I went was through. just a small example. Here's I, and I mean, there's more. So my question is one, well, you can say whatever it is you're about to say as well, but like, how does one hear that and then remain hopeful and not just be discouraged that for the state that we're in? Yeah. I mean, when I, I was, I was working through Nehemiah again this morning about like, how good the revival was before it failed. Right. And I, I, I isolated at least, and I didn't, I didn't get nitpicky. I was just trying to make a basic list. 16 areas of energetic, authoritative, vigilant attention that Nehemiah gave to different things from building the wall to like finding it, like discovering intrigues and treason and not falling for the plots to helping the poor. Right. And he kind of dealt with them as they came and he tried to make sure that they got worked out. And they try to put people who were competent in charge of what needed to be done. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it turns out that sin makes a lot of problems. Um, but but our goal, I mean, we're never going to make utopia. I mean, this is this is the thing Christians have to recognize: is our, we're ne- we're probably not going to succeed at making any kind of utopia. That doesn't matter, right? Everything we do, we do because we're serving God and it pleases Him. We're doing what's good and right, as far as we could tell, and that'll have a lot of great payoffs. We'll just see what those are. But I think what you, we can comfort ourselves with is that if we obey the Lord, there's a lot of there's a lot of things built into the structure of reality that create what the Bible calls blessing, which is not only does God Himself spiritually support the thing so as to bless it, but blessing also comes from following what God says to work in accordance with how He's created things to work, so that things build upon things, things get cumulatively better, 
And so if you obey God, if we work on some of these things and we seek restoration, reformation, things tend to get incrementally better in like a strong way, kind of like building a house. Like you put rafter upon rafter and the whole thing gets exponentially stronger. So you can, really can make progress in these things and it can make a huge difference, even though it's not going to be perfect. It's perfect. Yep. Yep. Great. Okay. So we're going to move to a section of questions that are unrelated to the sermon. And Nick, I'm going to, we're going to try to think rapid fire. Got it. Because we have six questions and we just answered six and it's been 40 minutes. So, okay. Okay. This first one should be a softball for that end. How is Pastor Mike recovering? Just fine. Oh, um, yeah. He said today, today in one of our staff meetings that he's to, he felt the most hopeful today physically. He's felt in a long time, and that's great. He seems to be doing well. He said it feels like uh, not like a hip surgery, but more like a broken leg now, meaning that it just aches and mm-hmm. he has to just do the stuff. So I think that's that's going in the right direction. All right, great. Thank you. Okay, next question. You talked a little bit at the beginning of our service about the new order in Dane County. Um, here in Madison. And you talked a bit about the idea of freedom um, and submission to authority. So this question, that's the context of this question. The person writes, there is Christian freedom and responsibility in many areas of life. For instance, having a beer or not. However, is wearing a mask or not, not a matter of freedom, but rather a matter of life and death? At my age, you're not wearing a mask can kill me. It's not the equivalent of having a beer or not. It's the equivalent of driving drunk. Did you not make a false equivalence? Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, there's a number of things I would say about this. This, this comes from a venerable the, theologian in our congregation. And so I don't want to disagree with it too heavily. The, the, the first is, is I would not say that within reasonable circumstances of close proximity that not wearing a mask is an area of freedom. Like I, I think that relative to a few things, right? So um, yes. Yeah, so, so I agree and disagree. So if there is reasonable likelihood that you could be emitting virus and you choose not to wear a mask and you are in proximity of people who could be high risk in this case, which is about, what 5% of the society, then you are doing something that is, I think you could, you could argue is the equivalent of drunk driving, right? You're, you're doing something that's kind of asking for it. Okay. Some of this gets back to the scientific, the scientific stuff related to COVID. For example, there's a number of, there's a number of folks who say, who believe scientifically speaking that if you are not symptomatic, it does not appear that people who are non-symptomatic shed virus full stop. So if I am not symptomatic and I don't wear a mask and I'm around somebody like this gentleman who, who could be of higher risk, um, then I'm not drunk driving. Right. And in that case, it could be a, an issue of Christian freedom. That is I'm acting responsibly and I freely chosen not to wear a mask because I don't need to. Right. But we're telling those people they have to wear masks anyway. Right. We're not, le- we're not leaving it up to their, their being informed and their sense of responsibility. We're just telling them they have to wear masks. Many of those people are informed enough to know darn well that there's there isn't a good scientific reason why they need to wear a mask. They if they get COVID, they'll be fine. Um, for people who don't have pre-existing conditions and who aren't elderly, COVID is less deadly than the flu, right? For people who are elderly and have um, those kind of conditions, it is much more deadly than the flu. So it's so COVID is a non-equal 
and it doesn't have is it, well, all diseases don't respect human equality, right? But um, so so what I'm saying is, if I tell somebody who comes to church that they have to wear a mask even though they're healthy, and even if they're going to be socially distanced, and all of those things, um, that I think that could have been an area of Christian freedom. Um, and be left to the responsibility of people. Also, people who are um, who are more highly threatened can also get better protective equipment so that they could be protected even if another person wasn't wearing a mask. So th- it's it's not just a one-way street here, right? Like when I go to places where I need to not get infected myself because then I have to quarantine for 14 days and so on, that's not life or death for me, but it's it's a, it's a an issue. I wear an N95 mask and I wash my hands and I I change my clothes when I get home and I take a shower and I do whatever I think I need to do to make sure that it's, it's extremely unlikely I could get the disease. Um, so, uh, one of our, the doctors in our church said that, um, for people wearing basic precautions themselves, um, for several months in the entire UW system, they didn't have one confirmed case of transmission of people working with COVID people regularly. So, Masking and hand washing, those sorts of things seem, seem to be highly effective, even when you're around people who have that. If you're wearing the mask, even if they're not wearing one. So, um, part of this just depends. Now, there's some folks who are just going to be like, look, viruses get through things and, like, you know, better safe than sorry. Yes, better safe than sorry, but you got to be careful about that principle because the principle of, hey, if you, do, if you do X, it could end up killing me, that's actually really true about a lot of things. Like, can anybody have a pool? Should anybody be able to use a firearm? Should we have? Should we be allowed to put sugar in foods? Right? Um, you know, there's this J- Dave Chappelle thing where he talks about how black men get killed. He's like, you know what kills more black men than anything else? Salt. M or effer? Basic, everyday table salt. Right? And so, but we know darn well that if we produce salt and we get it out to everybody, um, our production of salt is going to is going to encourage them to use it. They're going to use it. It's going to lead to high blood pressure, and they're going to end up dead. Right. So, so it, it so like the the issue of like us doing things that could have the effect like that is that's really tricky logic. Right. I do believe in this case that um, Christians aren't free to disobey the government for reasons that aren't like necessary relative to what God has called us to do in the gospel, right? And so if the government says that you should wear a mask, then I think you should wear one. I think you can tell them that you think it's stupid. I think you can say that you don't want to do it. I think I you do all that stuff, but I think you should wear the mask, right? Um, and I, I do think that in certain circumstances, not wearing it, up, so if the government didn't exist, right, and there were no government commands, would we still have to wear masks on the basis of Christian conscience? And I would say in certain circumstances, yeah. Like this gentleman here, if I was going to be around him, I would definitely wear a mask. Um, especially if I knew he felt this way, right? If I wasn't symptomatic, maybe I wouldn't wear a mask. But if I knew that he was concerned and he understood the science related to COVID differently than I did and was more conservative about it, I would wear it just to make him feel better. Does that make sense? So I think the issue, so did I make a false equivalency? Maybe. It depends on how you weigh a few things. Um but I want to make clear that I'm encouraging people at High Point to wear masks. I think they should. I, the only the only reason they shouldn't is if they have like a phobia or a breathing problem or some medically legitimate or psychologically legitimate reason why not to wear one. Um, being politically very conservative and believing this is an issue of freedom, 
I don't consider to be one of them. Because I frankly, I frankly kind of feel that way. Like I don't really want the government to be able to tell me to do this kind of thing. Um, but I also understand that in a complex society where people live very close together, some authority relative to public health has to be entrusted to the government, especially when we have shared plumbing and shared food supplies and all that kind of thing. So, uh, so I don't, I don't want to be too cavalier about that either. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I want to ask one follow-up question to this. The um, person who wrote this question and you, you both were, he wrote it first and said, was talking about Christian freedom mm-hmm. and you were answering it and talking about Christian freedom. I, I would love to hear a bit of an explanation with what do you mean specifically when you say Christian freedom versus civil freedom? Um, because when I, and this is like a question for me that maybe others who are listening have as well, because when I think of Christian freedom, what I think about most is religious freedom, freedom to practice my religion of Christianity. And I wouldn't consider in most circumstances wearing a mask as something that inhibits my ability to practice, practice religious, my religious, um, practices. So can you clarify yeah. that briefly? Yeah, this this gentleman is I think referring to to what he perceived I was referring to and he's correct of this language coming out of the reformation that there is um Christians have a certain kind of liberty that comes from the fact that we're not governed by law but we're governed by the operative nature of the spirit relative to faith. And so the in the Old Testament there was a particular law people had to literally obey commands. In the New Testament, there are commands, but the assumption is is that we're those commands are like basically like um, fences at the outside of what we could end up running into. But for the most part, we we shouldn't get anywhere near any of those commands. But we should be in a place where like love, working by the Spirit, um, through faith, according to conscience, is governing us. So we're we're internally, morally, and spiritually governed according to the truths of the gospel that's flowing out of our experience of being an image bearer of God. And we don't need any rules, right? So the, the, the idea is that in heaven, there will be no rules because everybody in heaven will be a person who needs no rules, right? And so that idea of freedom is fundamental to reformational Protestant Christianity. It, you can find it in Catholic and, and um, Orthodox Christianity, but it's, it's more foundational to the language of Lutherans and and people directly out of the magisterial reformation. And a, a lot of times that was that has been and that's one of the things that like people fight against um fundamentalism because of that because fundamentalism tends to create a new law. Like it's you've got to do this and this and this and this and it's like no you don't. Maybe it's smart to do this and this and this and this. Like don't smoke, drink or chew or go with girls do to do is really a smart thing. But it's not like the Bible doesn't say you can't smoke. Should you smoke? Probably not. But does like does the Bible literally say you can't the way it says you can't commit adultery? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Yeah. All right. Let's move to the next question. This is one. But, okay. Wait, wait, wait. I need to say something following up with that though. Yes. But you have to remember that in, in, in the book of Romans in particular, and I think in one of the, I think it's in first Corinthians, it says, look, when somebody else is weak in their faith, you don't use your freedom however you want. Right. The well-being of other people is more important. And so if you're hanging out with a vegetarian and like eating a steak in front of them is going to like horrify them and and ruin your relationship. You don't eat steak. You just eat like salad or something. It's fine. Who cares about meat? Right. But Paul says, if like, if, if meat would cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again the rest of my life. And as a bacon lover that like, I take that statement very seriously. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. that my brother is more, is more important than every pleasure I will take eating meat the rest of my life. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of pleasure. 
Right. And so my brother is very important. Yeah. I was at the end when you were talking about COVID, you talked about how coming to these places should not be um, a cause for division, specifically among the church, that we should be able to talk about these things and care for one another and even disagree with each other, but choose to love one another because we are a part of the body of Christ. And these things should not cause division in the body of Christ. And I found that as a helpful challenge and encouragement. And I think what you just talked about is just for more of that. People, this is a bit of a rant, but people are far too confident in their own thinking these days. Like in a time where we realize something about how much knowledge there is to have out there and that each person could have like what, maybe a billionth of the knowledge human beings have at this point, right? Like there was a time I think in like the night, is it like the 1950s or 1970s where like the University of Chicago was like, we know, you know, 95% of what human beings can know, the, the, the things that are knowable. And then like 30 years later, they're like, we know about 3% yeah. of everything that's knowable. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there was a time, like I heard somebody say one time that Goethe was the last man who could know everything that an educated person should know. That was like eight in the 1800s. And then there's just, there was just this explosion of human knowledge and thinking. And like the idea that any of us could be like, oh yeah, I know the answer to that. It's this. We get so like prissy and pissy about our little thoughts. And usually they're like really asinine. I mean, it's not like they're like not exactly right. They're idiotic if you know what's going on. And yet we get so angry about people who disagree with us. And we just think that they're, they're stupid bigots and they have no idea what they're talking about. And you're like, you're just, a, it, like people don't even realize they're just agreeing with the news source they listened to or the meme that they looked at. It's that shallow. And they're like, they get angry about it. And I'm like, grow up and be a Christian for God's sake. Like God literally says not to behave that way. It's so intemperate and so shallow. And so that that's like the epitome of a mind not transformed in the image of Christ that you can just like, you, you just could think that parochially and that narrowly and that like it. Yeah. You just got <coughs> a little humility in your thinking. And you won't be as mad at people. You know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. I'm going to move us to this next one. This is about baptism. This person said, um, let's see, they live overseas. They are watching our services. Um, and after listening to the sermon and the AMA podcast, they have a further question about baptism, specifically about pedo versus credo baptism, which you can- Pedo baptism is baptism of children. Credo is baptism on your own profession of faith. Great. They say that a close friend of theirs is Presbyterian, and so they've had a lot of conversations. Presbyterians do infant baptism. Yes, pedo baptism. Um, and one of the things that this friend said is that baptism comes with certain blessings, and he doesn't want to withhold those blessings from his child until they come to a point of their own profession of faith. So this person writes this question, what are the blessings that come from baptism? And while we're at it from communion, and then how would you answer my friend's argument of wanting those blessings for his child and thus baptizing them? Okay. So this question has a major category confusion in it, which is you could read it and assume from it that you get blessings when you do stuff God intentionally says not to do, right? So baptism only produces blessings for children if you if that's what God said to do to baptize them. The idea that you can like do what God says however you want and still get the same baptism just doesn't go with anything the Bible teaches. Yeah, it, I mean the blessing of obedience requires that you're what you're doing is obedience. So, Right. So if you're supposed to baptize people on their own profession of faith and you say, well, baptizing people on their own profession of faith, which produces baptism, 
uh, you know, of course people have certain blessings. So I will baptize somebody who is illegitimate to baptize in order to get those blessings is not good logic, ethically speaking or spiritually speaking. Now, um, putting that aside, what are the blessings of baptism? I think the blessings of baptism are wrapped up in the blessings of salvation, which are general and multiple. I mean, I don't know of any blessings that are specific to baptism that like you get, you get baptized and you get this blessing. I mean, baptism, baptism signifies many blessings because it signifies salvation and obeying God has many blessings and to, and God demands that we be baptized. So doing it, it brings the blessing of obedience, but I don't think that, I, I I don't think that that's a good run of logic. That that whole like that whole way of reasoning through this, I think, is just so fraught with difficulty and problem that I don't I don't really want to pursue it very much. I think it's just going in the wrong direction. I do think there's always blessing to obedience, and I think that baptism stands for salvation, which is a whole family of blessings that are almost incalculable. But blessing comes through obeying God, and if God doesn't did tell us to baptize infants who have not yet made a profession of faith or children who have made a profession of faith or cannot, I don't think that we should think that that creates some kind of blessing. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Next question. This one is about the moving into the digital age of church. So I'm moving down to this last question, Nick. So um, we'll come back to the other ones. So the, this person writes that you, you alluded to the church moving into the digital age or digital world to respond to the fact that lots of people live much of their lives digitally. Um, your question is, can you flesh this out a little bit more? I think they mean what, can you flesh out what it means to move into the digital age as a church? And then they mm -hmm. gave a little bit of context. I'll read a couple quotes from what they said, which was not to be accusatory, just to give context. Yeah. They, they said, to wit, I think that things like the smartphone, social media, and TV streaming services have on balance done more to diminish human flourishing than they have contributed to it. And then later they write, for example, pastors that have best adapted themselves to the medium of television have done so by making the gospel fit the medium instead of transforming the medium with the gospel. So that is the context about them asking about the church moving into the digital age. Yeah. Um, man, I think that this is like a, this is like a pub conversation. Yeah. This could go on and on and on. Um, so that, One which that was, I would that like came to in, have. <laughs> yeah, that came in an email and I emailed this person back who I'm very fond of and said, um, the, the short answer to, can I flesh this out a bit more is no. Cause I don't know my answers to these questions yet. Um, our staff is debating them this coming Monday and doing some research on them. However, I am in complete agreement with this person and also and also I believe we have to move into the digital age. So the way we've discussed this on staff is we've said what are some ways in which the digital age is a reality that we should cooperate with? Right that it's it's new technologies, it's new opportunities, there's new spaces and there are even even if there are regrettable changes that this is the main way people are interacting with each other if they are not interacting with each other in the other, in the other ways. There are some ways we may have to, we may have to accept this um, this change because to not accept it is to be luddites, right? To 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 um, to recognize what's ill in a technology and so as to be left behind. 
in a negative way, right? But then also we talked about how do we resist, what should we resist? And in what ways will this harm human life and flourishing? And should the church exist as an alternative parallel so as to still offer people those possibilities, right? So yeah, I, I yeah. So my, when I say we need to move into the digital age, I don't mean we need to go digital and like forget about human beings being embodied creatures or any of that. And I don't mean that. Um, I, what I mean is, is that we need, they're, they're, the world is changing. And do I wish I could hold it back? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Um, th- this happened. I mean, um, I don't remember what, I think maybe Jill was talking about this, how um, this happened with the printing press, right? When the, when the printing press happened and people started printing books, there are people who are like, look, this is going to make the world worse because right now people cultivate their minds to memorize whole works of art, like of liter- of literary art. People would memorize whole books of the Bible. They'd memorize whole, and they'd just recite them. And like, we did lose that. Mm-hmm. Like, people do not we do, do not that. We do not have that memory capacity. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it, it's so it, it's led to a to us being dumber, right? But I, I still think that if you put up the the average person from 2020 mentally with the average person from 15, like 13, um, who is a, a comparable st- status in society, I don't know that it would be that much worse. I think they'd be able to do different things, but I think that the person f- from modern times would be a lot more advanced in a lot of really significant ways. That I think what we would like, so. I don't know where this is going. I don't know what's happening. I, I do not think that the church should be, we should just adapt everything, but I also don't think we should be Luddites. I think we need to discern, discern and we need to reject some things. We need to receive some things and we need to reform some things, you know, and that's a, that's going to be a process, but we have to, we have to go through that process rather than just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Okay. We have two more questions. Do you see them both? Which one do you want to so. do first? all right let's start with number nine um this is how can i explain to an unbeliever why homosexuality is wrong i I don't know how to answer that in 30 seconds i I think the shortest answer that i could give is what is the framework of your moral reasoning right most most people who are uh gay affirming um, will say something like, well, they believe something like that in terms of some areas of ethics, we should be libertarians. That is, nobody should be able to tell you what to do, right? Um, if you're not, if you cannot show that you're directly harming somebody by picking their pocket or breaking their leg, then you can't seek to control them. But then in other areas that um, we're, we have all these ethical requirements that you can't prove, but we all just kind of know and we have to live according to them. So like if you take a modern progressive, they're going to be super gay affirming, right? So they'd be like, who are you to regulate somebody's bedroom? Right. And the answer is, well, I guess, I guess that means I'm not, that's what that means. Right. But then when it comes to taxation, they'll say like, you have this inherent, you're part of this community. Well, what if I don't want to be, how, why, how can you make me be part of this community? Right. So, so like on the, on the realm of like economic taxation, the progressive person believes that we all have a teleological relationship to ethics. That is that there's a nature of things, right? So like we belong to something, that's the nature of the thing. And so because we, that's the nature of it, we have certain responsibilities built into the, like teleology is the Greek word for perfection or the nature of things, right? So a teleological approach is like, what's the nature of the thing? What's its design? How does it function? And therefore, what is our responsibility? Libertarian is, 
do you have a principle by which you can curtail my liberty? And if not, you have no right to coerce me, right? And so the average modern progressive will say, in sex, things are libertarian, and in taxes, things are teleological. Well, why believe that? (laughs) Why not believe sex is teleological? Which is exactly what Christians obviously believe. We believe that we're created for a certain thing. Our sexuality is a gift for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is to um, form the complementary union between male and female, which forms a family, which is inherently procreative, right? And comprehensive. And that that is God's design for us. And that homosexuality and every other form of sexual morality, which includes many kinds of heterosexual um, things that were forbidden, including, look, listen, in, in Leviticus, um, marrying somebody who is socially too close to you, not incest, but that is socially close enough to you as to create problems in your, likely, it's likely going to create problems in your family, is for, it's forbidden, right? Um, and you could say, well, you know, how dare you tell me what I can and can't do? Well, that's exactly, one of the questions everybody has to make is, is the right way to think through this morally a libertarian way of thinking it through or a teleological one? Now, in most cases, you can think something through libertarian in a libertarian way, but that may not be the end of the story. Abortion is a good example of this too, right? The same, the same reason why homosexuality is wrong is the same reason abortion is wrong. Because if you, if you say to a woman who gets pregnant and she didn't intend to, you could say, she could say, well, I don't want to have a responsibility to this other human being. Who cares if it's inside of me? I didn't choose it. You can't put it on me. So the human, you know, this, this, I can't be forced. The classic argument is I can't be forced to give life support to another human being. You can't force me to do that. So I have the right to abort it. Okay, great. Here's the problem. Is there, are there other moral principles that are relevant? Like, are you a mother? Right? Because if you're a mother, because, <laughs> you know, it's like, so for, so for example, if you ask, if you ask a person, do you believe in a woman's right to choose? Right? And the person goes, yes. Okay. Do you believe in a mother's right to choose? Whether to carry her child to term. Right? Now, a lot of people politically would still say no to that. Right? But those are, those have different kinds of freight in the question. Right? Because one is libertarian. It's, it, it doesn't acknowledge a meaningful relationship between the mother and the child. Right? It's a woman and it's a fetus. And the, what do the two have to do with each other? Nothing. Right, so does a woman have a responsibility to the fetus? Of course not. It's a she's it's just a fetus, and she's a woman. There's no relationship for responsibility. So why would you force her and coerce her to have a relationship with this non right? And the answer is, of course you can't. Right, but if the thing is a child and she is therefore its mother, she's not just a mother; she is its mother. Right now, does she have a responsibility? And the answer is, of course she does. Of course she does. Right now, I mean, people can still deny that, and many do, but. You see how it's a different way of morally looking at it. So most people who will categorically affirm homosexuality either aren't thinking through a moral, a moral prism that they even know exists, or they're thinking through they're thinking through a particular one and they're denying another one. And that's really where this question matters: is is there a design for human sexuality that we are therefore morally accountable to, and what is it, right? And if it is the one that put, that's put forward in the scriptures, then um, homosexual expression, as homosexual sex, is sinful. And homosexual desires are disordered desires. And that gets into this whole other discussion about like Christians believe that human beings are full of disordered desires. Most everybody believes that, but for some reason they don't think about it carefully related to their sexuality. Like I don't know any, like almost every man is a lecturer that I know of. Every man would like sleep with multiple women, sleep with women at least 20 years, their junior. Like, I mean, just right down the line. 
Um, many of them would have children and not pay any attention whether or not they cared for them or had any responsibility to them. These are all like inherent um, orientations within the male human heart in most cases. And most men say, yeah, and it's bad. I shouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. Finish your thought. I want to, I'll ask. And I think it's, and so Christians have this capacity because of our belief in depravity to believe that we can have extremely profound orientations, orientations that even affect us physiologically and have strong affectual um, relationships to our identity that are still a hundred percent wrong and that we reject and don't embrace as our true selves. Um, Other forms of understanding human beings don't look at it that way. Right, the more inherent and deep and and like controlling the feeling is, the more you can't change it. The more absolutely you have to accept that it's part of who you are and what you are. And if and if you feel better, you feel happier, you feel like a release when you engage in it, then it's good, by definition, right? And Christians would say that's a very unreliable way to live in the world morally, and not a good way, and it's not a teleological way, and it's not it's not a it's not the right way of thinking through ethics or morality or spirituality, right? It sounds like you're saying that's the, if you're having a conversation with someone who's not a Christian, that a conversation about where are you finding your morality is where you begin, not starting specifically with the morality of sexuality and specifically homosexuality. I I, I don't, yeah, I don't believe in having an argument with anybody where you can't agree on the grounds of the discussion. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody says, well, homosexuality is fine. I, I would say within your framework of thinking, I'm sure it is. Yeah. The question is, is your frame way, way of looking at the world and your framework of thinking correct? Yeah. Or is it flawed? Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, okay. We're going to go to the final question. I'm going to move us out of that one, even okay. though, I mean, we have entire conferences on sexuality. So, okay. This last one says, how should God's love make one feel? Um. Yeah. Loved, I think, is the shortest answer I could give to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, we're done. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, it should make you feel good. It should make you feel filled with joy and happy and all those sorts of things. But the the thing is, I don't, I don't want to tell you that like you don't believe in God's love if you don't feel those things. Um, God's love towards you is objective, not subjective. That is he loves you no matter how you feel about it. Right. And if you accept that love, you, he objectively accepts your acceptance, whether or not you have healthy feelings about it, right? Um, You may have all kinds of internal emotional wounds that make it very difficult for you to give and receive love and all those sorts of things. That does not change God's love for you, nor his acceptance of your acceptance of his love, right? And I think it's really important for people to recognize that. Then, yeah, we want to go through the process of worship, of learning to adore God, of of being transformed to the renewing of our minds and becoming less worldly so that our loves become more and more rightly ordered. The more that happens, the more we'll experience a love for God and feeling loved by God. And the more we deal with our wounds related to love and relationship and bonding and feeling loved and loving others, that will usually help to us feeling the love of God. Right. I, I remember this, there's this video I watched where this guy who was in his sixties and had struggled with sexual, um, sins and addictions and so on said, I, sp- I spent the first 60 years of my life scrubbing my father's face off of the face of God. Right. There are like wounds and problems and things where like, we can't even conceptualize what God is really like. We can like doctrinally do it. We can be like, okay, I believe God is there. I believe that he loves me. I believe in that. Great. But like, that's, I mean, 
that's I think that's saving, but it's like you're not your heart isn't being released. You're, it, like there's so much more like healing and hope and transformation that we're we're to pursue in the grace of God in His love, right? So um, the, the the love of God. Let me say it this way: when you, if you are a believer, when you are in the glorified state, you will be eternally happy, content, secure. You'll feel like you're interesting. You won't feel like you're too much or not enough. You'll feel secure and fulfilled in the love of God. And some portion of that you can experience even now under the curse by the work of the spirit and the transformation of the gospel. How much of that, I, I can't tell you. I could, I believe it could be an increasing amount throughout your life until your death. But that's part of... There's, I think, seven places in the New Testament. That's probably not the right number, but there's a number of places where this verb is used that means eagerly expecting. And it's, it's like, and I'm going to talk about this next week. It's always in reference to um, glorification. That a, a, a real Christian has this profound longing, and it's not always for heaven. It's not for streets of gold or anything. Like it's, it's never that. It's always like Christ, seeing Him, receiving the righteousness for which we hope in Galatians five. Those sorts of things. Um, that that longing will be fulfilled, that longing to feel God's love the way we should have always felt it. Mm-hmm. But don't feel like if you don't feel it like you will in glorification, that like you're a bad Christian. The curse has ruined so much. And we're, we are living the abundant life in the ruins of a broken creation. And you've got to have a sufficient war mentality for that. All right. Well, we got through them. Thank you for taking the time to answer these questions, Nick. Thank you for everyone for asking them. And we hope that this was helpful for you. It was a helpful conversation for me. So I'm grateful. All All right. right. See you, everyone. See you next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.